the National Archives podcast series. This talk is called George Orwell, The CIA and Cold War Film. It was presented by Professor Tony Shaw and recorded on Friday the 1st of November 2019 at the National Archives, Kew. Burgess, Head of Events and Exhibitions here at the National Archive, and it's my absolute pleasure to introduce Professor Tony Shaw. So Tony is a contemporary international historian based at the University of Herefordshire, and since 2001 has been a fellow of the Royal Historical Society. Tony has written extensively on 20th century international propaganda and cinema, and has worked on the modern history of the Middle East, the culture of the Cold War, and on terrorism and mass media. Tonight, Tony will take us through the relationship between the cinema and George Orwell and why the CIA were particularly interested in his novels. Please welcome Tony to the stage. Thank you. Hi, thank you. I'm going to start with a clip which some of you might be familiar with. Today, the Soviet Union has officially entered professional boxing. <laughs> This is not just an exhibition fight, but this is us against them. He would like to compete against anyone who is qualified. Drago is the most perfectly trained athlete ever. Whatever he hits, he destroys. He could have stopped the fight. could have saved his best friend's life. I'll never forget you, Paul. But now, the one thing he can't do is walk away. Has the fight date been set yet? December 25th. Where? It's in Russia. Are you nuts? Mr. Balboa, where will you be going to Russia? I'm not going to Russia. I don't know what you're talking about. He's had one professional fight, and one man is dead. To baby, he's going to have to kill me. Why can't you change your thinking? Because I'm a fighter. You can't win! Imagine uh, some people of a certain age where they may have seen that before. Uh, this is classic, what we call, in your face, classic white propaganda. Uh, it's very simple, it's very straightforward, and it's a classic example of where propaganda meets entertainment. Rocky IV uh, was just about one of the most popular movies made about the Cold War during the Cold War. Uh, we all laugh, we all snigger about it. All of us think that none of us actually succumbed to its propaganda, but I bet many of us did. But I want to 
look at propaganda from a more maybe subtle uh, direction tonight and take us back a few decades from the 1980s. Apologies if you wanted it to be just a nostalgia trip in the 80s. I want to take us back a few decades to when film was movies were much, much more powerful even than when they were in the 1980s and the movie you've just seen. And I want to focus on this man. This is George Orwell. George Orwell is widely regarded as one of the great champions of social democracy, one of the most impressive and revered political writers of the 20th century. George Orwell died in 1950, a young man, only 19, is only 46 years of age. But I'm interested in many ways of what becomes of George Orwell's writings. Animal Farm came out in 1945, pretty much at the end of the Second World War. Animal Farm, apologies if you know this already, is an allegory of the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917. And it's a story about how the beasts, the animals, take over the farm from the humans, but the pigs become the new humans and become the dictators of that farm. A massive bestseller and went on to become one of the great political novels of the second half of the 20th century. Four years later, in 1949, Orwell produces arguably even better dystopian political novel with 1984 that equally becomes a bestseller and gets taken up in schools throughout the world and becomes probably one of the most important novels of the Cold War. Of course, as you know, it's a dystopian story of how Winston Smith in a future London becomes subjected to the wiles of Big Brother and ultimately gives in to Big Brother via torture and brainwashing. This is a man called Alan Dulles, who was head of the American Central Intel Intelligence Agency in the 1950s. His brother was called John Foster Dulles, who was US Secretary of State. So quite a formidable twosome, two brothers heading up two of the most powerful American institutions during the Cold War. I want to now talk about why Alan Dulles was interested in turning both Animal Farm and 1984 into movies in the mid-1950s. And I'm going to talk for the rest of uh, the session about the adaptation of those two books into movies in the mid-50s. Part of the reason why the CIA was interested in Orwell and Orwell's work is that, as I've already said, they were internationally famous. Another reason is that Orwell, to put it bluntly, was dead. Orwell died in 1950. In many ways, he therefore was free to be manipulated as far as intelligence agencies was concerned. The CIA, as you know, is famous mostly for espionage, the CIA, as others will know in the room, 
was equally adept at producing propaganda. It does this today, just as any, any intelligence agency will. This is a still from the first cinematic adaptation of 1984. A more famous version, film version of 1984, came out, of course, in the year 1984, starring John Hurt as Winston Smith. This is the first version of the film. It crashed at the box office. But what is interesting, if we look behind the scenes of the film, as I've done by looking at CIA documentation, is we find the CIA funding the film and also changing parts of Orwell's novel to make it more suitable for American foreign policy in the 1950s. I'm not going to go into detail about that because I don't have time. I want to focus in many ways on an animal farm, which I think was a more interesting, perhaps more entertaining story. But this, as you see, is a film made in black and white. This came out in 1956, black and white film. Uh, that's the image of, of course, Big Brother. I've often thought when I've seen the film uh, that Big Brother doesn't look altogether that menacing. Uh, it looks like a comical figure in many ways and, and sort of gives you an indication as to the film isn't very good. And I'm not surprised <laughs> it, it bombed at the box office. It's not very good. didn't have any major stars in it. But uh, in terms of what the CIA wanted to do with it and what they did with it in terms of changing it is, is however, interesting. Let's turn our attention to Animal Farm. As I say, Animal Farm... Uh, was the first of these two great novels. It came out in, in 1945. And in the early 1950s, uh, it had been runaway success. There'd been talk of turning Animal Farm into a film for a few years, but most people had given up on the idea. How could you turn a complex novel like that with animals into a mainstream feature? You couldn't. Until, of course, you think about cartoon and animation. The film was made by a husband and wife team called Hallis and Batchelor, who were, through the 50s, 60s and 70s, the best British animation company. They were at the cutting edge of animation. And the film, Animal Farm, which came out in 1954, was a landmark production. It was the first cartoon feature film made in Britain and the first of a sort of serious nature as well. Now the CIA, the American intelligence agencies, were lock, stock and barrel behind the making of this film. Here is the film being put together. You see the complex storyboarding that goes into the making of what looks to us a very simple animation film. This was an extraordinarily sophisticated piece of work. It took two years to make. To make a 60-minute or 70-minute film, animation film, takes a lot of preparation. And you see the sophisticated storyboarding that's going on 
the Farm Animal Farm. And John Hallis, the main animator, is the second from the right there. The CIA got involved by helping to finance secretly the film in the early 1950s and choosing an American producer, a man called Louis de Rochemont, who was a famous, you won't have heard of him, I would imagine, but he was a famous for his time documentary maker, to essentially produce the film with the help of the British team. British animators had no clue there was CIA money behind the making of the film. And in fact, about 15 years ago, I went to give a talk, which was the anniversary of the making of the film. And I gave a talk, which was, the room was full of all the old guys who'd actually made the film, and I revealed to them that the CIA had paid them for this job. And they were, some of them were really upset, and none of them were really angry with me. So the CIA had done a really, really good job in keeping it secret. Why were the CIA interested in turning this into a film? Why didn't CIA, it's American, use, for instance, Disney? A much better known animation firm. A, the answer to that is too expensive. B, by getting a British animation company, they were at one remove from it. They could hide their fingerprints a lot more easily. The film changes the novel in some important ways. You might say, why would the CIA need to change Animal Farm? Animal Farm is an anti-Soviet book. Uh -huh. But actually, Orwell's Animal Farm is quite subtle and sophisticated. It's an anti-totalitarian novel rather than necessarily an anti-Soviet one. And the American government felt, therefore, to bring this to the screen, to make it knowable by the masses, then they could change it to make it much more of an anti-Soviet, a much more transparently anti-Soviet film. And they did uh, this in several important ways. First off, this is Napoleon. Napoleon, he is the master pig who's taken over the farm with the help of his pig lieutenants. Napoleon is Joseph Stalin. But in the book, Animal Farm, whilst Napoleon is evil, a bad pig, he doesn't play as central a role as he does in the film version. So again, this is an attempt by the CIA to make Napoleon, Stalin, much more of the bad guy of the story. Here's an image. I'm going to show you a clip, by the way, in a couple of minutes. I'm going to show you a clip of the film. Here's uh, an image of where Boxer, the horse, tragically dies and is just then taken off to the slaughterhouse and showing the beasts, in other words, who, as you can see here, are distraught and realise that the pigs have no sympathy for them. The pigs... This is towards the end of the film. The pigs, of course, become the masters. And we start to see the use by the filmmakers of some of these totemic slogans, iconic slogans, that are famous in the book. The book ends just like 
1984 ends. It ends pessimistically. It is not a happy end. The pigs have taken over the farm and the pigs rule over the beasts. End of story. There's no happy end. Let's look now at the end of the movie rather than the book. When reports of this great change reached them, other animals everywhere were incredulous. Dismayed and indignant, they headed toward Animal Farm from all directions, instinctively uniting once again in common cause. Owned and operated by pigs, there is order and discipline. Our lower animals do more work and eat less than on other farms. This will encourage you to make your lower animals work even harder and eat even less. To a greater animal farm. To peace and plenty under pig to the day when pigs own and operate farms everywhere. To the animals, it now seemed that their world, which may or may not someday become a happy place to live in, was worse than ever for ordinary creatures. And another moment had come when they must do something about it. Thank <laughs> you. 
Okay, so obviously a very different ending, not a pessimistic ending. It's a happy ending. And the makers of the film themselves argued for years that it made sense. Everyone wants to go home feeling happy at the end of a film. But looking at the script changes, it's obvious that this is not just emotion, this is about politics. CIA was wanting to manipulate Orwell's novel, which ends pessimistically, into it being as a symbol of hope for people who lived under communism. In fact, it was there to be used as an inspiration for those who lived under communism to revolt. This was very much American policy in the mid-1950s when the Americans hoped that the Eastern Bloc, still very young, could perhaps be broken apart with a push and a pull from the West. So the film was made and put into numerous languages, languages of Eastern Europe and other countries, and was distributed. How much it was watched in Eastern Europe, it's difficult to tell. It was very difficult to get Western materials into these, but we do know it was watched in at least some parts of the Eastern Bloc. And it would become, for some of you, I wonder whether some of you have seen this like I did when I was a school kid in the 70s and 80s. I learned Animal Farm by watching this film. And when we asked in class, sir, why is there a different ending in the film to the book? Well, my teacher couldn't tell me, but now I can tell him why. So this is an example of not <coughs> Rocky-style propaganda, but more subtle, what we call not white, but black propaganda, where we don't know who's made it, but is arguably more effective for that. I'll stop there. Thank you. This podcast is copyright the National Archives. All rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.